Welcome to Ogilov Nanagas. Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologist Chris Thompson and Isolde O'Brolochon Carmody. Visit storyarchaeology.com for articles, stories, translations, and much more. If you can, please support our work by making a donation through the website. We're doing this for the love of it. Midwinter Special 2016 Ashling McCunglin, a satirical tale of extreme gastronomy. Well, we thought that for our Festivus special this year, we might go slightly beyond our current themes and get to grips with one of your favourite stories, Isolde. Yes, indeed. This is a story which is known as Ashling McCunglener, and that is the vision of McCunglener. And at a time of the year which is famous, or I suppose we should say infamous, for spectacular consumption, we're surrounded by food this yeah. time of year. In true Dickensian style, this story is all about food. Oh, it really is. But I'm not 100% sure about it being Dickensian. Well, it does have a ghost. Well, all right then, if yeah, you or say a so. phantom, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, let's see how it works out. Mm-hmm. It's not a story I knew until you were the, you introduced it to me. You were the yes. one who first showed it to me. So give us a bit of background on the tale. Well, interestingly, the text itself begins with the narrator of the story giving us a background. He starts with almost like our keshed opening mm-hmm. that we've had before. It said there are four things that are needed for the telling of a tale. Those four things are when it was written, by whom it was written, where it was written, and what was the cause of its being written. I suppose that's a good enough start, isn't it? It is, yeah. It's your when, where, who, and why. So the setting is in the Great Cork of Munster, Mm -hmm. and I think people from Cork would say, well, you don't have to say Great Cork, you just have to say Cork. Its author is given as Anair Macunglina, uh, who is of the Onacht Glen Aure. It is composed in the time of Cahal Macfingana, who is given as the son either of Kuken Garm, which I think is the, the hound of the blue head or the barking head, or <laughs> the son of Kuken Mother, which is hound of the mother's head. The so, son of the barking bitch's head. <laughs> something like that, yeah. Oh dear. The most important thing that it says in this opening is that the cause of this tale being created was in order to banish the demon of gluttony that was in the throat of Cathal McFingon. Yeah, that is kind of important. Yes. What about the text? Well, the text itself is transmitted, uh, one of its versions is in the Lower Brack, which is from about 1400. Uh, there's also a version in H318 in Trinity, which is one of our great saga sources. The text itself is dated by Kunomeyer to between about 1050 and 1100. Mm. So it's Bang in the Middle Irish period, which as well as being a period of great linguistic change, was also one of huge social change. We're Mm. talking about Mm. the advent of Norman influence in Ireland. And some of our favourite literary style texts come from that period. Yes, because they are very literary and they have a lot of joy in language, as we're going to find out. And quite a lot of satire as well. Oh, hugely, hugely. And this is no exception. Well, let's start with this one. Yeah. The story itself says that Cahal McFingona, who was a governor, he governed, was king of Munster, that he was a really great warrior prince and also, importantly, a good king. He did have a bit of an edge to him. He could be expected to eat like a horse, but 
also possibly to eat several horses, as we'll discover in this tale, because he's cursed with this demon of gluttony. Uh, yeah, now the text describes his food consumption. Yeah. Look, here's just a small quote. He might wolf down a pig and a cow and a bull calf of three hands, three score cakes of pure wheat and a vat of new ale, plus 30... Heath Polk's eggs, which is probably grouse eggs, yeah. and that would just be a quick snack yes. while he was waiting for his main meal to be cooked. Yes, <laughs> and when it came to a feast, it says the quantity of food would be unreckonable. Yes, and it does remind me of an old friend of ours who, twas said, would get up in the <laughs> middle of a meal in order to go and make himself a sandwich. Yeah, what's more, he was as thin as a rake, he I could know. eat what he wanted, and it wasn't fair. Definitely demon of gluttony involved there. Yeah, and a lot of pasta as well. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, Carl McFingon's uh, demon, which was in his throat, it said it might even have been Satan himself. But the king never got the good of anything he ate. Now, the reason for the presence of this demon, well, it was a sort of lovesickness. Yeah. Cahill was hopelessly in love with Ligoch who was daughter of Maelduin, king of Eilich. Yes, which is up in North Donegal. Now, this could be our Maelduin of the Imrov, and that little connection might well be deliberate. But she was the sister of Fergal, who, not surprisingly, is also son of Maelduin. He was a co-ruler with his father, so his father and son team. Now, this was problematical, because apparently at the time of this story, Maldum was then in contention for the kingship of Ireland with Cahill. Yes. So he and Maldum were fighting it out, so they weren't the best of friends. No, no, certainly not, and obviously political rivals. But what's particularly interesting, I think, about this lovesickness was that Cahill had never actually <laughs> seen Lugach. This, again, I think might be deliberate, because what it reminds me of is a story called Ashling Oyngasa, which is where Oyngas Machindog conceives a love for Coir, having never seen her in real life. So it's referencing other stories. I think it is. And, and I think the fact that it's an Ashling as well is yeah, significant. So this is going to be a satire which yeah. references a lot of other works. Absolutely, perhaps yeah. Perhaps more serious works. Well, certainly, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, Ligok certainly seems to have had some sympathy for Cahill, and she does send him presents of sweets and nuts and apples and they encourage him to woo her. But alas, her brother, Fergal, finds out what she's about and he is definitely not impressed. No, he's the enemy. Yeah. Now, he confronts his sister to say that she has to tell him the truth about what she's been at. And he says that if she tells the truth, he will give her a blessing. But if she doesn't, he will give her a curse, which is a kind of... A bit more stick than carrot, I think. Now, Ligok was more afraid of her brother's curse, and so she told him everything that had been going on. Right. Now, Fergal instructed her to send the apples, nuts and sweets directly to him. Mm -hmm. And once he got hold of the intended gifts, he called in, it says, a scholar to lay charms on the apples, which would cause Cathal's destruction. Yes. And messages were then sent with the end-spelled gift, as if it had come directly from Ligoch. Yeah. And they were told, get him to eat it, since it's out of love and affection that they've been brought for him. Yeah. And of course, he does eat them. And the apples contain little worms, I presume maggots. But these are magic maggots <laughs> and these little creatures wiggle around in his inside and they all come together to form this demon of gluttony so all the little maggots make up this one demon it really sounds to me like a very detailed description of intestinal parasites so now we've got ta satan as a tapeworm yes. 
<laughs> which is something that Milton didn't even think of. No. <laughs> this is where the, the demon of gluttony comes from, and the text tells us how it brings ruin to the whole province of Munster after three half years, and it would have ruined the entire country of Ireland within another six months. So how about this wise and famous scholar, the author of this piece, MacOngliner. Yeah. Now, he tells us that he's the best poet in the country, yeah. according to the poem where he lists all his rivals somewhat unflatteringly. Well, yes, and this is one of several sections that, unfortunately, we're going to have to really skim over in brief. Since, you know, this is a seasonal special, it's supposed to be somewhat light-hearted, we will have to restrict ourselves <laughs> to the main story thread, but the full text is, oh my God, it is stuffed full of all kinds of details and illustrations of especially the increasing tension between traditional poets and the church learning. And so it's well worth reading the text as a whole, and we will include a link to it on the blog. But for now, we've really got to pick and choose our details, I'm afraid. But hopefully that'll encourage you to go and read the whole thing. He calls himself Honor Macunglina and then follows a sort of synthetic etymology. He, the, the reason he says why he was called Honor was because he would satirise and praise all. Yeah. Does that explain it to you? Well, it does. On oir would either be a great satire or it would be no satire. We, we have this wonderful prefix on, which can, from Middle Irish onwards, can signify either an intensification or a negative, mm -hmm. which is fantastic for poets, as you might expect. <laughs> so it seems to be that it, the idea is he would satirise absolutely anyone and that would be it. It would be the greatest satire ever composed. So his name itself is a praise and a sort of boast for himself. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Well, let's go back to our scholar. Now, yeah. he feels a great longing, apparently, to be an old-style poet mm. rather than the new style, which is the passive monastic scholar. Yeah. And in fact, the text says, for wretched to him was his life in the shade of his studies. Yeah. I suppose what he means is that uh, this modern style of monastic scholarship mm. doesn't give him any fame or any credit. Yeah. What he wants is to be an old-fashioned, famous, glorious poet. Yeah, and I think, though, that it's also to do with being peripatetic. Within a monastic settlement, you don't have the same leeway to travel from one yeah, place to another. Belong, the old poets were the ones who could move between tour. Exactly, yes. Whereas once you're in a monastic order, then that's where your loyalties are and that's where you have to stay, really. Very and cloistered. you're under much more authority. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, he really is forced to choose between the native learning, which has that sort of peripatetic... Independence. Independent power, yeah. yeah. Um, and the church learning. Um, and these two... They are starting to diverge at this point in Irish history. There's more influence from the Norman uh, way of life, which has already been being established in Britain, but also continental church organisations are starting to try and bring the more rogue elements within Celtic Christianity mm -hmm. into line. And limiting the powers of the individuals, yes. bringing them under a specific authority, it, a hierarchy. Yeah, definitely. It's a different type of hierarchy. McCunglana decides that his best course is to go to the court of Cahill McFinglana, who at that time was staying in Ivy, which is in Munster. This is like near the Bear Peninsula. We're talking about those two, three sticky out sticky bits. Out bit. 
in the bottom left-hand corner of Ireland. But it seems that one of the main reasons for choosing this particular area is that Macungana reckons there won't be any shortage of very rich and lavish food at Cole's Court. Yeah, and he makes this decision one Saturday evening in Roscommon. Yep. <laughs> but when he sets out, it gives this wonderful description of the land he crosses. He goes across Connacht into Ochty, to Limerick, to Carnary, to Barna Three Carbid, which I like, it's the gap of three chariots, into Schlievkian, into Fermoy, across Moen Moor, until he arrived just before Vespers in the guest house of Cork. He makes this entire journey that one Saturday night. So he's really shifting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he couldn't drive it. He could probably drive it that fast. But he yeah. He couldn't do it by public transport that No, fast. definitely not. <laughs> well, there then follows a great description of the guest house in the monastery in Cork as mm. he found it. And it was kind of inhospitable. Oh, yeah. This is one part of the description. Mm. This was the way in which he found the guest house on his arrival. It was open to the wind and rain. The blanket in the guest house was rolled, bundled in the bed, and was full of lice and fleas. No wonder truly, for it never got sunning by day, nor its lifting at night, for it was not wont to be empty at its lifting. <laughs> the bathtub of the guest house, with the water of the night before in it, with its stones, was by the side of the doorpost. And the poet finds no one there to wash his feet. And he does look after himself, but he finds that these blankets are just... Oh my goodness, they are crawling with fleas <laughs> and lice. <laughs> it goes on that the fleas and lice are as numerous as the sands of the sea or sparks of fire or dew on a May morning or the stars of heaven. And the lice and fleas were nibbling his legs and no one came to visit him or to do reference to him. And that's very important. This poet has every intention of getting himself noticed. He's clearly not happy with this lack of welcome, lack of fanfare. And he wants his status as a master poet to be acknowledged. So what he does is gets out his psalter and he starts to sing the psalms and the rosary and the liturgy and, you know, every bit of religious poetry and song he can get his hands on. As he's singing, his voice carries right through the night, right across the town and well beyond it, so loudly that everyone in the town thinks he must be next yes, door. A, a Brian Blessed voice. <laughs> yeah, I think we've all encountered a few of those where you just wish you could stop your ears doing it. I like Brian Blessed voice. Um, of course, but not necessarily <laughs> right in your face. And not singing at night. <laughs> but the abbot of Cork, Manachin, eventually hears about this solitary guest. Well, I suppose he hears him before he actually hears about him. Since McCung has arrived on his own, the abbot expects him to come to him, to the main monastery, in order to get the handout, the dole of food that was due for a traveller. And he comments that this visitor must be terribly lazy not to make the journey all the way from the guest house in order to get his scrap of food. And it seems that he isn't going to be given very much either. All he's to get is a small cup of whey water, two sparks of fire in the middle of a wisp of oat and straw, and two sods of fresh peat. And anyone around here will tell you fresh peat is wet peat. It's not exactly easy to burn. So what's going on here? What's the problem? Certainly the levels of hospitality seem extremely low. Oh, they're, they're paltry in the extreme. But a bit more than that... As a traditional master poet on the road, Macunglana is expecting to be fated. He is expecting to be met. He's expecting to have 
really high-quality hospitality, both the lack of anyone to come and attend to him, the paltriness of the food, the lack of fire, the darkness, and the horrible, horrible blanket, is just deeply offensive. This is the biggest slight you could give to a travelling poet. Yeah, he's been treated as really of low status. Yeah, he's been treated like a beggar basically, and that's not what he is expecting or not what he wants. So it's wants. really showing up the change in the approach to the poet. Hugely. Well, anyway, the abbot finally gives in and sends a student to fetch McConglinner. Yeah. Now, the student who goes is afraid of the dark. <laughs> and that's another thing we haven't mentioned. Poor McConglinner has just been left yeah. in the dark. The student's terrified and he's really afraid of this lurking visitor. So very quaveringly, he sort of goes... Is there anyone there? And McCogler answers that there is one person. And now that's significant because the student responds that essentially it is Gesh to prepare this guest house for only one visitor, which is something of an explanation of why it hasn't been done. Gesh or just not worth it? Well, it does say about spells, so it's obviously a very, very serious uh, prohibition. But Makungana responds that, well, if there is a Gesh on it, then I'm the one who's going to break that Gesh. And what's more, it was fated to happen like that. Uh, He follows up with a poetic challenge. Yes. And this is a satire. Oh, yes. Now, lad, said McConglinner, why should we not have a duel in quatrains? Yes. A quatrain composed on the bread, and I will make one on the relish. Cork, wherein a sweet bells, sour is its sand, its soil is sand, food there is none in it. Unto doom I would not eat the oaten ration of cork, cork's rotten ration unless famine befell them. Now, now this is... satire. It really is. And it's so close to the legendary first satire that was composed by Carbra mm-hmm. against Bresch, you know, without food quickly on a dish. Mm-hmm. I believe that's deliberate. I think this is very much drawing this, on that knowledge. Yeah, this is a satire which shows an understanding and expects an understanding of references. Oh yeah, most definitely. I don't think that's an accident that now, it's so similar. Now, the attendant, indeed, understands the significance of this poem. Yeah. It's a satire not only on the monastery, but it's a satire on the land and the fertility of the land itself. Yes. It's as deep as it can go. Exactly. He takes it extremely seriously and rushes back to the abbot. Yes. Now, Monachine, the abbot, he is also concerned yeah, about stupid. this. No, but uh, Monachine's concerns seem a little bit different than we might expect in an earlier story because his response is to say, oh, little boys will sing those verses unless the words are avenged upon him who made them. Mm-hmm. So his concern is that this verse is so well formed and well constructed that it's going to stick in people's heads and Uh, people uh, are going to be wandering around singing cork soil of sand yeah but what's more he may not think that he can that that Moncongliga can destroy the fertility of the land Mm. himself Mm. but he thinks that the ordinary folk will believe it oh absolutely and that will just undermine the monastery's authority and worst of all people will laugh at them and Mm. that is just Mm. still the absolute and ultimate yeah now, it seems our poet is in serious trouble. Manikin is not going to let this go. Mm. But the punishment he hands out is vicious in the extreme. Oh, horrendous. He has the poet stripped, beaten and dipped into an icy river. Yeah. Then 
The poor man's locked up in the dark guest house with only the lice-ridden blanket for warmth. Hey, are you sure this is a suitable story for a holiday special? Well, yes, but it does get worse before it gets better. I'm afraid you're right. It does. <laughs> okay. After McConglin is appalling night, the abbot comes to see him. And the abbot tells him, well, well that's what he can expect if he makes fun of the church. Mm. But but. Congdener carefully points out that the monks have acted no better. Mm. And in fact, it's worse. They've seriously abused the ancient rules of hospitality merely because he was a single traveller. Yes. But the abbot's attitude, which is, I think, pretty horrendous, is that the church is above satire. He says, oh, your satires are not going to worry me. But what he's saying is that the church is above the law and that the satire is therefore a blasphemy. But the action that he takes I, just seems to me, and I think to a lot of listeners, even more blasphemous. He decides that he is going to sentence McCunglina to the very worst fate that any Christian could imagine. He wants him judged as having insulted the church and plans to have him crucified. Now that's an unexpected image, a crucified poet. Yeah, it's a very strong image that, isn't it? It is. Uh, and it seems that what used to be just a legal satire mm. is now automatically blasphemous yeah. and therefore they can do what they want. Exactly. So you can't criticise the church or it's immediately a mortal sin. Now there is a reference here and a few places in this story to McCunglin's original sin and also to his inherited sin. I'm not sure about what the significance of that is. Maybe there are early church scholars out there who would have a better idea. It's possible that the implication is that the poet hasn't been baptised. It's not clear, It's not it? clear, but, you know, but right throughout the story, what is clear is that McCunglina is Christian. He can perform all the offices of someone of Christian learning. Quite loudly. <laughs> Very loudly. <laughs> there's a curious kind of, there's a distinction being made, certainly, between McCunglina and Malachim. Well, don't worry, this is a, a holiday special. Yeah. And it does have a happy ending, but for the moment, <laughs> yeah. they're still determined to have him crucified. Yes. <laughs> now, understandably, McCunglina insists that he really has to be judged under law. Well, yeah, and they do give it a try. The text says that every man of the monks of Corks proceeded according to rank against McCunglina. But though a deal of wisdom and knowledge and learning they had, lawfully he was not convicted on a point of speech for which he could be crucified. So even if crucifixion was in some weird way acceptable as a sentence, not in this case, by their own law. He's done law. nothing wrong. No, exactly. They can't take him under law. Monarchine then decides, well, if we can't take him under law, we'll take him without the law. So they take the law into their own hands. Yeah. I mean, this is just horrendous. You know, this is a group who decide that their authority is beyond any code of practice, any sense of fairness. This is just Monarchine seeking a horrendous revenge on someone who's upset him and just escalated beyond anything that is remotely acceptable. So, you know, it's, it should be, I think, uh, emphasised that while this is clearly satirical, it's not saying every abbot would have responded like this. It's saying this is how this abbot responded. Yeah. It's pretty bad. Oh, it's horrendous. It's awful. But anyway, on McCunglin's way to being crucified, 
He does some ingenious filibustering. I'm not surprised. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, sadly, this is one of the sections that we're going to have to tell an outline, but yeah. it's quite funny. It is. Uh, in the circumstances, <laughs> if you can find it funny. A hilarious crucifixion scene. Yeah. Well, yeah. first of all, he asks to eat what's in his satchel, yeah. which is, he sort of suggests that it's um, a last... A last meal, yeah. yeah you know, and, and even maybe the host, you know, there's oh, yeah. some suggestion that it's a, a spiritual need. Yes. But what he gets out of his satchel is bacon and bread that he's packed Yes, before he journey. left home. And yeah. he says he's kept this for emergencies. Yeah. Now, he points out that even this last meal, this emergency food, he is prepared to give the tithes to the poorest beggar, but concludes that he's much poorer than anybody present, <laughs> anyone in the assembled horde. And besides that, he's travelled much further than any of them. Yes. So first he eats his own tithe, yes. and then he eats the rest of his food. Which I think could also be seen as, you know, satire on the church. You know, it's sort of, you have to give us a tithe of all of your produce for the worthiness of the church. Oh, and then we're going to take everything else as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I wonder, is there something oh, there's like that? there's a lot that? more to it. Oh, yeah. Next, Bakungan is taken to the River Lee, to a well by the Lee that is known as Everfull. And this is his last drink. He's had his last meals, and now he's on for his last drink. But he's not going to make it easy on the people around him. He's going to have his last drink one drop at a time, using his brooch pin to dip into the water and then allow one drop to fall into his mouth at a time. And he says he can keep doing this for nine days straight. (laughs) (laughs) So while they can't stop him from having this last drink, they decide that either they'll just take him now or they're going to leave nine guards around him by the well while he's at this until he dies of natural causes. (laughs) They don't like this, though. No, and at this stage, the monks are getting a little bit antsy. They want to have time off overnight. They haven't done their usual daily duties. You you mean like celebrating Mass and being good to the poor? Yeah. Ironic, isn't it? I know, I know. It's like, oh, we have to leave this person that we are punishing disproportionately in order to go and tend to the sick. Yeah, but it gets worse. (laughs) They're not going to give up on the poet, so they take him into Fox's Wood to make him cut down his own crucifixion tree. Yeah, which is a bit like, you know, the mafia driving you out into the desert and making you dig your own grave, isn't Mm. it? But Makungana tries once again to get a stay of execution. He does stay remarkably upbeat and quick-witted, considering the mess he's in. Yeah, but it clearly is getting late. The poet suggests a plan, which says, why not provide him with a fortnight's worth of good food and alcohol, as well as warmth and a suit of fine clothes? That's an answer that would suit him, but it doesn't suit the abbot. No. (laughs) And the abbot has an alternative suggestion, which is, why not just tie you to a pillar stone and leave you overnight and we'll crucify you in the morning? Yeah. Let's say the justice of law was not granted to Makungana. Definitely not. (laughs) And now, and I think we need a fanfare sound effect here. Our story finally begins. (laughs) This is all preamble. At midnight, when Makungana is tied to this pillar stone, an angel appears to him and he perches on top of the stone. The thing is that the angel sitting there is heating up this stone and making Wakungana <laughs> rather uncomfortable. And so, so he's not cold? No, certainly not. But he asked the angel if he wouldn't mind moving away a bit, in fact, over to the next ridge before he could be at a comfortable temperature. This, it is said, gives rise to the Dinyanicus of Angel's Ridge. Now, our poet doesn't waste any time. Immediately begins to shape this experience into poetry. Yeah. And in the morning, when the monks return to crucify him, he's got a story to tell them. Mm-hmm. And he brags about this wonderful vision in such a manner which makes it certain that the monks will be all agog to hear it, whatever the abbot thinks. Yes. But what Makungana 
actually resides once he is given the chance to yeah, talk. Is really a satirical and insulting fake genealogy for monarchine. And it's all about food. Yes, it is. Look, I'll, I'll, I'll give you part of the text. Yeah. It goes like this. Bless us, O cleric, famous pillar of learning, son of honeybag, son of juice, son of lard, of full fat sausage, son of pure new milk, of nut fruit, son of tree fruit, son of gravy, son of dripping, of fat, son of kidney, son of rib, son of shoulder, of well-filled gullet, son of leg, son of loin, of the top of effeminate care, Son of soft white midriff, son of bone nourishing nut fruit, son of Abel, son of Adam. <laughs> Fine is your kindred of choice food to the tongue so sweet, O oh man of staid and steady step, with the help of your pointed staff. <laughs> is he implying the abbot's fat? I think he certainly is. But the abbot brushes it off and he says that this does not insult him or the church. He's saying, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones. Even though he's now crucifying the poor man for insulting the church. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And then he's saying, oh, you can't insult me or the church. Yeah. Well, McCogden breezily replies, oh, this isn't a satire. This is a genuine angelic vision. <laughs> and there's more where that came from. Yeah. And he goes on with his pièce de résistance, his vision of the land of food. Now, I think that we should give this part of it in full because it's just so wonderfully put together. Now, it is a piss take of an Imrov and it is central to the story. Right, hold on to your stomach. Here we go. (laughs) Try and get through it without nausea. (laughs) A vision that appeared to me of wonderful appearance, I will tell you all. In a greasy coracle made of lard, harboured in a new milk lock, our oar strokes then we pull, taking it across the level sea, throwing the sea's harvest up like sea-soiled honey. The fort we reached was beautiful, with walls of thick custard. Beyond the lock, new butter was the bridge in front. The rubble dyke was white of wheat. Bacon the palisade, stately, pleasantly it sat, a compact house and strong. Then I went in. The door of it was dry meat, the threshold of bare bread, cheese curds the side, smooth pillars of old cheese and sappy bacon props, ranged alternately with fine beams of mellow cream. White rafters, real curds kept up the house. Behind it was a wine well, beer and braggart in streams, each full pool to the taste, malted a smooth wavy sea, over a large spring's brink flowed through the floor. A row of fragrant apple trees, an orchard on the pink-tipped bloom, between it and the hill, a forest tall of real leeks of onions and of carrots stood behind the house. Within, a household generous, a welcome of red, firm-fed men around the fire. Seven bead strings and necklets seven of cheeses and bits of tripe hung from each neck. The chief in a mantle of beefy fat beside his noble wife and fair. Then I beheld. You can't see my face, but for a vegan, this is really difficult. (laughs) It does leave you feeling a bit... Oh my God, yeah, yeah, this just sounds like hell. (laughs) But even Abbot Malachin can't ignore this vision. <laughs> but he does oh, see... I feel seasick. I know, Actually, I, I know. feel fat sick. Yeah, I know. It just... Oh, my Lord. Yeah. That's why we've chosen it for this time of year. <laughs> 
But the abbot can get a glimmering that this might actually be helpful to cure the King Carl McFinglener of his demon of gluttony. <laughs> and finally, McConglener has the upper hand. He's got a lever on the abbot. Yeah. And he asks, well, what would I get for telling this vision to the king? Well, what the abbot offers is, well, you know, is it not enough that we will spare your life and not kill you? We will not crucify you. Yeah. That's your reward. <laughs> but this isn't good enough no. for McConglener. And he settles for the present for the abbot's lavish and very warm cloak. Now, it seems like a lot of these story types, you know, oh, I'll give you anything. And then the person asks for the one thing that person is not willing to part with. The abbot is seriously upset about this cloak. It's very special to him. And he really, really does not want to lose it. But once again, he has made a deal. And so he does release McConglana and he heads off to see the king. There's a great description of the bizarre manner in which McCongula chooses to dress for this visit to the king. Yes, and it is worth taking a look at the text, but what it really amounts to is that he dresses himself as a low-status entertainer, like a jester or a clown mm-hmm. in medieval Ireland. I'm sorry to say it might have been a brugador, which is a professional farter, <laughs> or it might have been a druth, who is a professional clown who elicited humour by pretending to have an intellectual disability. So these are not really terribly intellectual forms of comedy, but that was what was popular. There are comedians like that now, I think. <sighs> Unfortunately, yes. At any rate, what McCunglana is pretending to be is really what how the monks have cast him as this very low-status vagrant entertainer rather than what he is or at least how he sees himself which is as this high status poet. Now Cathal is lodging with Picorn son of Melfind. The king's massive appetite though is a huge problem for his host. Oh yeah for any host as you can imagine. He can't keep up with the amount of food that the king consumes and he says he'll offer anything any amount of richness if McCongola can kill the king. Yes. Now, when this king arrives at Pichon's place, McCongola begins to act rather strangely. While the king is there on his, you know, mid-snack chomp down on some food while he's waiting for other food, McCunglana begins gnawing on a huge stone. And when he's questioned about it, he says he really doesn't like to see the king eating alone. (laughs) And the king kind of throws him one of the apples that he's munching on, you know. It's very rude, obviously, for for your king to be eating and nobody to be keeping him company. But one apple isn't enough. McCunglana keeps on sort of upping the number of apples that he requires by using biblical references to justify the correct number of apples that ought to be shared. That's a part of the text you really should look at. Oh yeah, it is fantastic. In the end, the king just gets frustrated by this and throws the entire barrel of apples at him. And the apples just go all over the place. They're rolling all over the floor in the house. And it all descends into chaos. Well, McCongler then sort of changes his way of approaching the king. He Mm. appeals to the king, explaining that these demands for apples and his really strange behaviour are the result of this sad quarrel he's had with the abbot. (laughs) Yes. Cahill replies by launching into this really long story, illustrating how he would never dream of hurting a scholar. This, of course, plays right into McCongana's hands because what the king is doing is saying that his honour demands standing shoulder to shoulder with this 
great and elevated poet. Yeah, now he is accepting McConkula as the poet. Exactly. And he also understands his responsibility and his relationship with an old-style native poet. Exactly, yeah. That's where his loyalties lie. Yeah, and he's got him. McConkula's got him on that. What McConkula says he's planning to do is to make a legal satire against the abbot and indeed the entire church. And because Cahill has sworn that he will support the poet, Cahill will have to join him in fasting against God. (laughs) Which is a pretty, you know, ballsy move, you'd have to say, even for a really great poet. But he's trapped the king. I know, yes, he's got him exactly where he wants him. Now, we've gone over it before, but it's worth just remembering that there is this procedure of legal satire, which is the way in which a poet can get justice for when he has been offended against. And part of that procedure of the legal satire includes giving notice of the the crime and the person who's accused of that crime but it does also involve this period of fasting against mm-hmm. the person who has offended you and that person couldn't eat either exactly could they? yeah the, the other person then has to fast otherwise you know it's, they've lost yeah they really have lost all moral high ground this says mcunglana is essentially going to be satirizing god it's very clever it really is and this is a verbal trick that is worthy of a real master poet yeah, and the fact that what i find interesting is that Cahill actually understands this yes he understands the processes yes in a way that the mannequin has refused to accept yeah yeah so the king is has to be on his, his yeah. side mcongola is just upping the price all the time yeah now. the king would now lose his honor if he fails to join him in the fast to overturn the malediction of the abbot mm. but the problem is that the demon of gluttony won't allow the king to go any period without food yeah I mean, he's horrified. Of course he is. But he's given his word. And in order for his authority to have any meaning, he has to join McConglana in this fast. And the whole household also has to fast with them. They have to, you know, (laughs) respect their king and their poet. There's just not going to be a feast that night. And it's just as well McConglana got hold of the apples. Yes. Cockle's host is up very, very early next morning, ready to prepare an even greater amount of food for the king who's just going to be ravenous. Absolutely. But McCunglin is ready for this. His <clears throat> quick wits and his poetic tongue are in full flow. He points out that after such fasting should come preaching. <laughs> and he whips out his psalter and he begins talking up God. And he manages to keep this up and prevents the feast from starting until it is terribly late in the day and then they all have to fast for a second night. So this is like somebody saying, oh, I'm going to say grace before we eat and then not shutting up. (laughs) So basically he does this all day. Exactly. And they can't go against this. No. The king is caught by the old ways but he's also caught by the new ways Exactly, I know. They've got him coming and going. So poor old Carl, he's got a second even more hungry night. Well, you can imagine by the following morning, the host is getting desperate. Yeah. I mean, any moment now, the king might lose it completely. But this time, McConglader reassures him and calls for the preparation of a feast. Thank goodness. And it is going to be quite the feast. There's a fantastic description in the text. And I think I'll read this yeah. bit because it's lovely. <laughs> This is McConglener being spoken of. He called for juicy old bacon and tender corned beef and full-fleshed lamb and honey in the comb and English salt on a beautiful polished dish of white silver. Then putting 
a linen apron about him below, and placing a flat linen cap on the crown of his head, he lighted a fair fire of ashwood, without smoke, without fume, without sparks. He stuck a spit into each of the portions, and as quick was he about the spits and fire, as a hind about her first fawn, or as a roe, or a swallow, or a bare spring wind in the flank of March. He rubbed the honey and the salt into one piece after another, and big as the pieces were that were before the fire, they dropped not to the ground out of these four pieces as much as would quench a spark of a candle. <laughs> he just sounds like he's now taken on the persona of a sort of celebrity chef. He's even put the hat on, you know, so like, hang on a moment, I've got the apron, I've got the hat. Let me create. This is a master chef moment. It really is. Yeah, yeah. Poetry doesn't get tougher than this. Um, He does know what he's doing, and he has prepared a plan with Pichon in advance. As soon as the meat is cooked, he calls for ropes and has the strongest warriors lay hold of the king (laughs) and very strongly tie him up. What's more, he checks the knots personally. Oh, yes. Just can't let anything go wrong no, here. This isn't going to be one of those moments that the king yeah. is going to slip and <laughs> bounce off his wrist. No. With one bound, he was <laughs> No, Definitely no, he's, gonna, he's taking care of this. Yeah. But the poet then very carefully lays out these succulent morsels in this huge feast in front of this poor helpless king. Then he calmly sits down, cross-legged, in front of Cahill. He takes out his knife and cuts a juicy piece of meat, dips it in the honey and eats it (laughs) right in the face of this bound king. (laughs) Poor Cahill is begging for the food and then he starts bellowing and then he starts roaring as McConglana cuts slice after juicy slice, waving each right in front of the king's nose before putting it into his own mouth. It's very visual. You yeah. can imagine the scene. Absolutely. And the king's horrified indignation. He's roaring now that he is going to kill this poet despite the long story he told <laughs> earlier about how he never could. And now of course McConglana being a true poet, he now having sort of eaten in front of the king, he settles down to entertain the king with a tale. And of course, what he recites is his vision, the vision of the lardy fort with its palisade of bacon. (laughs) The one that we recited in rather a lot of detail a few minutes ago. The text says here, though grievous to Cahill was the pain of being two days and a night without food, much greater was the agony of hearing the description of the many pleasant meats, and none of them for him. But this time, McConglina adds more to his tale. Yes. It starts with him going on about, as I lay on my fine canopy brass-posted bed last night. Well, you know, this is a bit of a contrast to the old lice-ridden blanket, anyway, or being, or, or tied, being to tied to the pillar stone. So he's setting, he's made a different setting. Yeah. But anyway, he goes on. I heard a voice say, beware, beware, McConglina, lest the gravy drown thee. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And the next morning at dawn, apparently, he sees a great phantom a ghost approaching or a spirit I suppose it Mm. is the spirit repeats the warning and continues at very great length to state just how unlikely it is that the poet will ever heed the warning (laughs) now McConglina protests that the reproof is too hard and severe because he has no idea who the phantom is or what he wants. Yes. Well, that is easily known, says the phantom. I am Fluxy, son of Elcub the Fearless, from the fairy knoll of eating. I think these are basically made-up names, aren't they? Oh, totally. Well, very much like our food genealogy early on. The poets then politely ask for news from this land of food. And this phantom says, oh, you haven't got the stomach 
type for it. <laughs> Unless you have a very broad, four-edged belly, five hands in diameter, in which could be fitted thrice nine eatings and seven drinkings and of seven chewings and nine digestions, a dinner of a hundred being in each of those eatings, drinkings, swallowings and digestions, respectively. <laughs> <laughs> That's a big stomach. Now, McConkelin agrees he hasn't got such a stomach. <laughs> But the description is making him hungry and making him wish that he could eat as much as mm -hmm. being suggested. So the phantom then tells him to make his way to the hermitage of the wizard doctor, where he says, Thy appetite for all kinds of food which thy gullet and thy heart can desire will find a cure, where thy teeth will be polished by the many wonderful meats of which we've spoken. Love that phrase, thy teeth will be polished. Yes. <laughs> By eating the meat. Finally, the poet asks this phantom what his name is, and we get another fantastic list of rich and fatty foods. <laughs> well, I won't give the whole thing. It's beginning to make me feel nauseous. It's, it's long past that for me. <laughs> but it's not dissimilar to that food genealogy that we were given for the abbot earlier. Well, here's Justin a moose bouche or a small, <laughs> small taste. <laughs> I am, he says, wheatlet, son of milklet, son of Juicy Bacon is my own name. Honeyed Butter Roll is the man's name that bears my bag. Haunch of Mutton is my dog's name. Lard, my wife, sweetly smiles across the kale top. Cheese curds, my daughter, goes round the spit. Fair is her fame. Corned beef, my son. His mantle shines over a big tail. <laughs> It seems like one of those strange details to throw in There's at the a last bit more minute. of it, but it's just yeah. that's a section of it. Uh, also, then, this phantom gives a blessing on McCungdana's journey to this wizard doctor. And it's rather reminiscent of, you know, a priest's blessing on a journey. It says, May smooth, juicy bacon protect thee, O McCunglana, said the phantom. May hard, yellow-skinned cream protect thee, O McCunglana. May the cauldron full of pottage protect thee, O McCunglana. May the pan full of pottage protect thee, O McCunglana. <laughs> yes. Yeah, amen. <laughs> and the spirit finishes by saying that neither greed or hunger can trouble him after this blessing. Yeah. Apparently, though, the greatest danger he faces is still being drowned by gravy. <laughs> and for some reason, suets and cheeses are the best safeguards against these heavy waves of gravy. Yeah. I mean, this is absolutely a spoof Imrov. He's going to have to, you know, travel over this treacherous sea... Of gravy. Of gravy that might drown him. <laughs> then there's this incredible description of, of his journey, and I have to read some yeah. of this because it's just... Talk about purple prose. I know. Vehemently, furiously, impatiently, eagerly, greedily, softly gliding like a young fox approaching a shepherd, or as a clown to violate a queen, or a roistering crow to carrion, or a deer to the cropping of a field in winter rye in the month of June. However, I lifted my shirt above my buttocks, said the poet, and I thought that neither fly nor gadfly nor gnat could stick to my hinder part in its speed and agility as I went through plains and woods and wastes towards the lake and fort. <laughs> Please, if you can, go and read the full text. These descriptions are just, oh, they're so strong and colourful and utterly uninhibited. <laughs> McConglana's visit to his land of promise are such a contrast to the dry and joyless destinations of, let's say, 
Brendan um, oh, yeah. <laughs> with its cruel punishments which are randomly decided oh, through predestination. predestination. It's just so horribly random. Yeah. You know? He was born to be damned. Yeah. Nothing yeah. we can do about exactly. it. So just leave him to be damned. Yeah. It's just so joyless. Yeah, and I think this is a very deliberate contrast to mm. such a tale. So on goes Macungana in a juicy little <laughs> coracle of beef fat. Very bijou. Yes, with its coating of Hallow, with its thwarts of curds, with its prow of lard, with its stern of butter, to the country of early eating, in front of the hermitage of the wizard doctor. Yeah, there's more description. I just can't leave this out. It's so good. By perpetual pools of gravy, past woods dewy with meat juice, past springs of savoury lard, by islands of cheeses, by hard rocks of rich tallow, by headlands of old curds, and along strands of dry cheese. This text goes on for many pages in the same vein. And the land and the hermitage of the wizard doctor are very fully... And mouthwateringly. Or, you know, bile-inducingly described. (laughs) Yep, makes your average Christmas TV food ad look positively spartan. (laughs) Anyway, he meets with the wizard doctor himself. And the wizard doctor tells him that the poet looks terribly ill indeed and asks what has caused this terrible disease. And McConglin's answer is interesting Mm. because he says, what it is that shrivels me up is that... Anything I eat gives me neither satiation or substance. Yeah. And that's not his problem. No, that's Carl's problem. So this is him poetically going to get a cure for the king, if you like. Mm. The wizard doctor offers a cure and he describes at great length, as you might expect, the detailed preparation and ordering of the perfect feast. So this perfect feast is the cure. He has to put on a perfect feast. Yes. And this includes descriptions of the food and how and by whom it should be served. The description is sumptuous, is very sensuous and very detailed. It is almost as though this is the ideal feast. Yeah. This is what the... The platonic feast. The platonic perfect feast should be. Yes. That will cure greed. Yes. Because it is so utterly perfect. beautiful. Yes. Yeah. Now, there's an awful lot of it, but mm. I'm just going to read one little bit about one of the ways in which the food is served, mm. particularly because of the end of this section. Yeah. And let an active, white-handed, sensible, joyous woman wait upon thee, who must be of good repute, of good discourse, red-lipped, womanly, eloquent, of a good kin, wearing a necklace and a cloak and a brooch, with a black edge between the two peaks of her cloak, that sorrow may not come upon her. And let this maiden give thee thy thrice nine morsels, O Macongleda, each morsel of which shall be as big as a heathfowl's egg. These morsels thou must put in thy mouth with a swinging jerk, and thine eyes must whirl about in thy skull while thou art eating them. <laughs> which suggests almost an etiquette, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. That there's a performance of ecstasy. But he's almost saying that if you go to this length, you can't eat too much because yes. you have to enjoy and make an issue of every morsel. Yes. This is nouvelle cuisine. It is, an, or mindful <laughs> eating, depending on how you want to look at it. You know, it's not what the amount that's on your plate. No, it's how it's you eat. It's how it's presented. Yeah. This is what it reminded me of, yeah. some of these ridiculous nouvelle cuisine yes. styles. Yeah. I told you, this is MasterChef gone mad. It really is, yeah. But it goes on anyway, and the complete description will be available from our website. And it's it just... Just go and read it. It's just so good. The next bit's even better. Yeah. The doctor goes on to describe how drink should be taken. And he finishes with the admonition that this advice, if followed, may cause loose bowels, but that it is worth the trouble. (laughs) 
<laughs> right, he caused diarrhea, the disease of sages and gentlemen. Yes, and this is a bit like gout, isn't it? You yeah, know, the yeah. gout is this, the disease of the rich. This is a rich. problem of overeating, yes. prob- or of eating too rich food. Yeah, but it's probably it's worth really it. worth it. This is fine dining. Yeah, yeah. So fine dining instead of greedy gobbling yeah. is what's going to cure the king. Well, back to Cahill. It seems that the demon is so attracted by this sensuous description of food that it's drawn out of Cahill's stomach. It's now outside his head, licking its lips. Yes. <laughs> and as McCunglaner teases the king with these juicy morsels, which he waves in front of his nose, the demon reaches out to grab it. And when it does this, the poet very quickly takes the meat with the demon still hanging on to it and shoves it under an upturned cauldron and there it gets burnt up. Yeah, although, adds the text, some storytellers say that it went down the throat of a student priest and that this student priest was drowned in the mill point of Duncoin. But, it adds, it was never told that way in court. No. <laughs> in court they know they got rid of it completely. But of course, McCunglana is richly rewarded and he became a poet of fame and renown. Just as he wanted to exactly. be. Exactly. And the story finished with a series of colophons, mm. which you expect after a good story. Oh yeah. The married couple to whom it is related the first night shall not separate without an heir. They shall not be in dearth of food or raiment. The new house in which it is the first tale told, no corpse shall be taken out of it. It shall not want food or raiment, fire does not burn it, and the king to whom this tale is recited before battle or conflict shall be victorious. On the occasion of bringing out ale or the feasting of a prince or the taking of an inheritance, this tale should be recited. Yes, and that is the story of the Ashling McCunglaner. And our Christmas carol-style offering for December 2016. I'm still not 100% sold on this Dickensian comparison, yeah, well, though. You don't like Dickens. I really, really don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it begins with a very Scrooge-like abbot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> A, a demon of meanness, actually more noticeable in Mannequin than Cole. Yes. It definitely has a ghost, a uh, phantom. Yes. Reminiscent of Christmas present, and that's surrounded by food. And the whole story finishes with generosity and hospitality restored. Somewhat like a Christmas carol. Well, yes, but I'm not sure that Scrooge Monachine gains a new outlook on life and well, reforms his personality. You can only push a good analogy so far. I mean, well, Scrooge doesn't go around trying to crucify Bob Cratchit. Well, not literally, at any rate. <laughs> now, that would make a new version, wouldn't it? Uh, yes. <laughs> would have added anything to a Muppet's Christmas Carol. <laughs> oh, yeah, they would have done that brilliantly. <laughs> Well, we usually spend time in discussing the story after we've told it, mm. but have you any comments to add to this one? Well, it really is. It's such a good story that speaks for itself, as any good story should, particularly if you go and read the thing in full. We really couldn't have covered half of it in this episode. But it does have themes that we end up coming back to again and again, particularly themes about the power and importance of the poet in the early Irish stories. Don't knock your poets. We're Absolutely not. It's, it's your cardinal sin, if you like, in Irish literature. This is a deeply satirical piece and it does remind its audience of the original function and influence at a time when things were undergoing really 
quite radical and rapid change in Ireland. And we did touch on this earlier. It's much more broadly explored in the full story where the roles of the poet and of church learning were diverging and that the Mm. traditional poets were losing their position and their political influence, particularly with this influence both of the continental organised church and then ultimately of Norman law, which mm. is so threatened. And the poor traditional Irish being law. sort of weighed down by stone hierarchies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's also a great counterbalance to some of the narrow constraints encountered in the Day influenced in Rovo. Yes. Such as, you know, the Ikora. Yeah. Or, as I've said before, the miserable experience of members of Brendan's voyage and yes. the rather joyless land of promise he gets to. Exactly, yeah. But this story is so deliberately drawing on the full tradition of Irish story. Mm. You know, over the course of it, we've just pointed at a few of them. The way that it references, you know, Ashling Oingasa, mm-hmm. which is about Oingas Macandog. It references Carbrot's first satire, which is part of the Moitura mm. cycle. It does reference these Imrova mm. and, you know, the, the good as well as the bad, if you mm. like. Uh, so I think it's very deliberate all the way through. It's drawing on that familiarity. The poet is saying, you know, these were good stories don't you remember them yeah they still have something to say yes i told you it was a little bit dyskensian well (laughs) (laughs) don't worry i'm not that keen on dickens but i do think he's good at making up names yeah yeah Very well, anyway, names. Yeah. it's nearly Christmas yeah. and we ought to go easy on all our wonderful listeners. Yeah. So let's just wish everyone an enjoyable and moderately overindulgent holiday season. Yes. I think that if I ever hear about bacon and lard again, I'm just going to uh, vomit up my own demon. And I think I'm going to enjoy a plain green salad after this. Well, yes. <laughs> but we will speak to you again in 2017 when we will continue our circling of the time. Thank you for listening to Agalith Nanagus, conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologists Chris Thompson and Isolde O'Bullochorn Carmody. For more information, to subscribe or make a donation, please visit storyarchaeology.com. You can get in touch via email on storyarchaeologists at gmail.com.